Hey folks, just wanted to jump in here real quick before the show starts proper and uh, give a shout out to our sponsor for this episode of Adjust Your Tracking. And it is uh, our friends over at the Criterion Collection and specifically their new Blu-ray release of, wait for it, The Breakfast Club. That's right. Even the Criterion Collection gets in on some of those 80s nostalgic gems. Um, And The Breakfast Club is, of course, one of the great ones. So cannot wait to dive into this new uh, HD transfer of this movie, new Blu-ray edition of The Breakfast Club. And so cool to see it with that weird crooked C on the cover. So uh, any movie lover uh, worth their salt should be jonesing for this one. Um, So pick it up if you can. All right. So with that, I'm going to just give one more shout out and a thank you again to the Criterion Collection for supporting our podcast. Now on with the show. Hello and welcome to Adjust Your Tracking. I'm Eric McClanahan. I'm Joe Von Oppen. Joe, my friend, are we finally ready to put away 2017 to bury it? We ready to do this? Yeah. I, th- I think it's with like less resentment than normal, at least <laughs> cinematically. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It, was a, it was not an easy year. I think uh, socially, um, humanistically, maybe not a word. Um, but like, you know, it was a, it was a good year at the movies. If you want to find any sort of like silver lining to the perilously dark clouds of 2017, um, there was just, there's, you know, a lot, a lot to sort of put through and a lot to, to celebrate this last year. It's true. uh, So yeah, let's, uh, let's, uh, set, let's do a Vikings funeral for, uh, 2017. (laughs) And and by that we of course we just kind of wanted to go through you know we're not too late we we've discussed off mic that like it always takes you and I a little bit longer to be able to catch up to these things, but uh, I th- I feel like I personally have been able to see pretty most of the stuff that I feel that I needed to see to make a a, a halfway decent top ten. And uh, I think you know this about me, but I like to make a whole top thirty films of of the year if if it warrants it. And this year. Um, I can say that just doing a top 30 even was pretty hard because I had to chip away at movies that I genuinely really enjoyed um, that, mm-hmm. that didn't make that list. And I guess that's a good a good problem cinematically to have. Um, but yeah, you know, uh, you, you're almost sounding a little like me there, Joe. Like uh, you're, you might be finding some of the optimism uh, <laughs> in our in our choices of uh, of, of movie going th- uh, options. Um, it's It's good to have a lot of good ones. But yeah, you know. The world, the world continues to turn, even though it's quite shitty out there. But uh, yeah, the world uh, sort of effectively reflected in the most engaging and rewarding films of 2017 is a thoroughly complicated and fucked up place. But um, you know, we find respite and inspiration in these films, and you know, let's let's count down the ten. Let's do it. So, should I do? Um, how about I do like my ten through six to start, and then you do the same, and we'll go from there. That's great. You want to take a, a little break to discuss the, the the five that you've gone over? I think so, man. I think there's enough to. Yeah, let's do that. Let's do that. Um, so I'm going to start. Uh, I'm going to just okay. just burn right through my ten through six right now for for 2017 films. 
Um, and, and one last caveat. Holy cow, there are so many great films that I couldn't even fit into my top 10. So um, if, you know, if any listeners here are like, why didn't you have this, Joe or Eric, in your top 10? Reach out to us, uh, adjustyourtracking at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter at adjustyourtrack. Let us know, because um, I'm sure people will disagree or think we missed something. So, having and my sa- answer is going to be, I'm difficult. So. <laughs> Joe's just difficult and don't give a fuck. Um, I'm the one who worries about this stupid shit. So, um, having said all that, here is my 10 through 6. Uh, mm. Number 10 is The Square. Number 9, The Killing of a Sacred Deer. Mm. Eight, Ladybird. Mm. <laughs> Number seven is Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Mm. Mm-hmm. Number six, the oh so wonderful the Florida Project. So that's my ten through six right there. And, uh, let me know yours, Joe. Uh, well, my my ten through six is uh, at number ten. It's a tie, which I'm you know kind of historically <laughs> shitty for. I do ties every now and again. <laughs> Sometimes I, I like to find ties uh, in movies that I, I feel share some similarities. Like one year, it was 2014, there was a tie between Whiplash and The Raid 2 because I think they shared like a similar force and sort of athleticism to their presence. But my tie this year is Dunkirk and Phantom Thread. Ooh. My number nine is The Florida Project. Number eight is Okja. Number seven, I, Tanya. Number six, Ingrid Goes West. Oh, lovely. I wondered how high Ingrid would be for you, man. This is the fun for, I guess, you and I personally is just to see what movies we've discussed in the last year will end up in each of our respective lists, you know, Um, because I really liked Ingrid Goes West, but it was one of those that I had to peel off my freaking top 30. I thought there were so many movies that I enjoyed. So it's one of those things like that is that was like um, that actually Ingrid Goes West was one of my underrated picks when I did. I was hanging out with the over-under guys, Ryan and Octay, uh, a couple weeks ago. We did a year-end episode, and that was one of my um, underrated picks of the year because I do feel like it got it got kind of lost in the shuffle, and we really liked that movie. So I'm glad to see that uh, that, that ended up uh, so low in your list, man. But um, I got to go right right to your tie, Phantom Thread and Dunkirk. So what what's your connection for those movies? The Is there an intensity I, that you fought, saw together? Or? Well, I think that there's – I have um, a sort of – and, you know, we'll get into Phantom Thread. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's our main review later on. But um, there's, a, there's a formal quality, and I have like an allergy to uh, period pieces, which that's a, that's a pretty lazy term at this point because it's just like, well, anything preceding this moment is potentially a period piece considering that like entire like uh, – generations seem to happen within two weeks. So, um, you know, like now as time is accelerating, the movie set in the 1980s is a period piece. So what once used to be considered kind of costume drama e period pieces um, is, is harder to determine, but like, that's what I consider phantom thread to be. It's like, it's a period piece. There's like a, there's a formalism to it. And Dunkirk, similarly as like a war movie, there's just like a classic quality to both of them. And, uh, you know, in terms of intensity, they're pretty far apart in how they capture intensity. Um, I'm imagining they're further up your list than mine. So, um, that, I mean, maybe you might be onto something there. Yeah. Maybe that's a presumption. But, um, there were like Dunkirk is a little further down my list because there were some like problems I had. Like, you cannot deny the sort of the power of the film. Uh, mm-hmm. 
but I I didn't really feel like the structuring was necessary, and I felt like he he's somebody that just like unnecessarily complicates things because there has to be some cerebral element. Christopher Nolan, that is. <laughs> Hang on, let me <laughs> drop it in the jar. Uh, Christopher Nolan, ten, you know, he he fragments narratives, he juggles timelines, you know, he just he there has to be a cerebral element to it. So it was it became like a sort of thing where I'm like, I, wait, what's go, what time is it? like? It was just night a second ago. Oh, we're we're juggling timelines. I don't know why that's necessary. Um, so tell me this: was that did you see it once or several times in theaters by chance, Dunkirk? I saw it once in seventy millimeter in your face. <laughs> well, I got to see it in 70 millimeter in Portland as well. Luckily, um, Ooh, our theater. That's the connection. I saw them both projected in 70 millimeter Phantom mm-hmm. Thread and Dunkirk. Well, now I hate you because Phantom Thread is not coming to 70 millimeter in this Twice town, which in your face. Yeah. yeah, you son of a bitch. Well, that um, I guess the reason I ask is um, I, I know what you mean. Nolan is a he can't help but kind of succumb to that that style that he likes to do but you know admittedly i think this is what you're saying is that it doesn't always work for you but you know that's his uh i'm going to i'm going to make an odd com- or i'm going to say it awkwardly like i did last episode there's a lot of his dna in every movie you know he really he really <laughs> he really puts himself in all these movies and um upon the second viewing for me i saw dunkirk 3 times in theaters and i did a uh, it was projected at the press screening in DCP. I got to see it in 70 millimeter the second time, and then in the uh, proper IMAX up in Seattle. All those experiences were actually different because the aspect ratios are different. But uh, without getting too geeky about it, I will say that 70 millimeter experience at the Hollywood Theater was the best one for me. As much as I love the giant IMAX screen for Nolan. Mm-hmm. Um, the switching back and forth of the aspect ratios bothered me, even though it happens less in Dunkirk than his previous movies. But um, anyway, uh, Dunkirk in the theater, I, I guess seeing it a, a few more times, that structure added so much more rewatch value because otherwise this is just a very one note, almost atonal nightmare survivalist story. Mm-hmm. And it's so good at that, that it almost would be like a Requiem for a Dream one-time watch for me. But what I found really great, and yes, both these movies, both your 10 picks are going to be higher up on my list. I'll just put that out there right now. But Dunkirk really has rewatch value in that way. And I actually found that structure and the intensity of the movie and actually the fact that it's not rated R, that it's not a bloody movie. Mm-hmm made it feel new in the World War II realm. Yeah. Um, and that genre is pretty tired. I mean, it's as tired as like the Holocaust drama now, and it, or it's just been to, done to death. So I think Nolan really found an original World War II movie um, different than what Quentin Tarantino was able to do with Inglorious Bastards. But um, those are the things I really was struck by and taken with. And I actually found that the end of Dunkirk very moving, like Tom Hardy flying over the beach with no out of fuel just moves me incredibly moves me. So, um, yeah, I, um, I'm glad to see it made your list, but I do understand the structural, uh, maybe annoyances for you with him for sure. Yeah. It's, um, it's a great ensemble. And like, I, I, I actually found that it was like pretty, pretty varied in its tones, even though it's like, it's anxious throughout. And so that can start to feel sort of atonal and exhausting to people. Yeah, but if you're going to accurately attempt to accurately portray what that war felt like, 
it's going to be nothing but exhaustion and just like, it's going to be harrowing and traumatic. And like, I think that the ending is like, it, it is a sort of new glimpse at war. And the fact that it was, it didn't, it sort of fetishized the brutality of the war, the way like, um, uh, what's the hamburger Hill hacksaw Ridge. Um, uh, it, it didn't do that. And it also wasn't distracting in the fact that it wasn't rated R you know, it was like, you can definitely feel even in the post, like in the sort of introductory Vietnam war sequence, mm-hmm. you could tell that it's like, no, this is a PG 13 Vietnam <laughs> war sequence. You don't get that sense because like it, it's basically, it's not about the, the lost limbs or the grisly sort of up close brutality of the war. It's about the toll it takes of like being in prolonged panic for like yeah, that yeah. amount of time. And what that can do to like the human spirit almost, you know? Yeah. And I mean, I just to maybe wrap up because Dunkirk, I think, was the most interesting one to discuss so far that we've brought up just because we never actually did a proper episode of it. So um, we both clearly enjoy the film, uh, like it quite a bit. So it's nice just to get a few words in on it um, because it really was... um, if I think of theatrical experiences, um, it's a little bit different than my best film ranking or favorite films of the year, but best theatrical experiences, Dunkirk 70 millimeters, number one, I would say Blade Runner 2049 and IMAX was number two. And then probably my second viewing of mother actually was my other great theatrical experience, which I, I don't think you're going to agree with me on that one, but, um, Ooh. um, how many times did you end up seeing Blade Runner in the theater? <laughs> I saw that twice in theaters and uh, that second viewing, especially, which I also thought that movie would not play well on a second viewing, but boy, it it went up my list after seeing it again, because um, seeing how it's all pieced together when you know the reveals and where it goes makes that movie better in a way that I think even the first movie can't compare to. I, I do actually think Blade Runner 2049 is just slightly better than Blade Runner and it makes Blade Runner better. I mean, we talked about this a little bit on the podcast, but yeah, I, I adored that, that experience, man. It was loud. It looked gorgeous and, um, I was overwhelmed. That's what I want. Yeah, it's uh, it it's not in my top ten, but it definitely was a, a runner up and an honorable mention for me because it's it's beautiful and immersive, and any sort of qualms I had with the conclusion of the movie, mm-hmm. um, just it it it's not enough to derail what like was I think a a very not misunderstood or even maligned movie, but just a sort of carelessly dismissed movie, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's just like un- we're unfortunately living in a time where the experience that the original Blade Runner had, we're just not in that era anymore where a movie like that can like gain notoriety slowly and surely and become a certified classic. Like it just feels like there's just a, an avalanche at all times. And like they declared Blade Runner 2049, a failure instantaneously. (laughs) It's just like, well, give it a second to breathe. And it like, it did hang on like in Mm -hmm. the, you know, box office wise, like it hung in the top five for a while. It maybe was too expensive to make its money back, but then it's, you know, a true, a true spiritual follow up to the original because neither did the original. Yeah. And it's going to gain that, that following over time, I think as well. Um, Hopefully there is an audience willing to find it in a way that will be different than it was 30 years ago, as you pointed out, or they need to work a little harder for it, but um, as gorgeous as a big screen experience as it was for Blade Runner 2049, I mean, hopefully people just find it. Maybe it becomes a repertory rerun movie 
just like the original was down the road. You know, that would be hopefully we don't get 10 different edits of it like Ridley Scott did. I'm imagining no, that will not happen. So, um, yeah, yeah. Um, Blade Runner really, um, really blew me away. I, I, I was excited for that movie, but I liked it way more than I expected to. So, uh. That was yes. one of those mainstream sort of pleasures to have. And I think in the end, it's going to make its money. It'll be fine. It'll be just fine, you know? Okay. I think so. That's that's me. <laughs> Good for you. At least we I got it. it. I'll sit. <laughs> uh, uh, so sh- five through one, what do you think? Let's do it. All right. So uh, I'll just list mine off. Here they come. Number five is Good Time. Can't believe that's as low as number five, to be honest. Mm. Uh, number four, The Shape of Water. <laughs> and here comes number three, Mother. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and number two, Dunkirk. And I'm mm. almost, I'm kind of embarrassed, but I'm sorry. I just saw this movie, but it is my number one. Phantom Thread is, after one viewing and only about 36 hours of time since seeing it, I think it is by far the best film of 2017. So um, maybe we'll get to that. Uh, we have a longer discussion coming on Phantom, but uh, it's my number one, man. It honestly was not even a doubt after the credits started on that movie. So yeah. uh, Dunkirk held on number one all year, but uh, Phantom's got everything for me. So uh, that's my five through one. All right. Um, my five through one is number five, Call Me By Your Name. Nice. Number four, Lady Bird. Number nice. three, Get Out. Number two, Raw. And number one, come on, good time. Yeah. <laughs> I knew, I figured that would be your number one. Um, a few yeah. things I got to just throw out there. Uh, I'm so glad you got Call Me By Your Name on there. That was my number 10 movie and got shoved out once I saw Phantom Thread. So I'm heartbroken that a movie like Call Me By Your Name is a number 11. Yes, so is the movie. The movie is heartbroken <laughs> because of your ruling. Elio is still staring at that fireplace during the credits because because of me. It's um, your picture folding up in the flames now, though. <laughs> um, so, yeah, uh, really glad to see you give that a shout out. Get Out is like in my top 15. Um, adore that film. Raw is right in there as well. It sh- it was in my top 10 all year. And then all the good movies ca- or a lot of movies I really loved came out in the last three months. So, um, you know, like uh, of those five or I guess, you know, number one, good time was good time when you saw it. I'm imagining that was like instantly you're like, I don't know if I'm going to see a better movie all year. Am I assuming too much? I- I'm sure you were into that, like with it from the beginning. There there was like a, a definitely a narcotic quality not just because of the filmmaker's previous movie, but like there was just like a sense of immersion and like uh, just a, a kineticism that like I wanted more of immediately. Mm. And so I, pro- I saw a press screening of it like pretty early in July. It came out in August and it played on the, the biggest screen in Los Angeles in the, the arc light where the filmmakers were in the dome. And it was like seeing that movie uh, play to what I think was like a sold out crowd, which is like hundreds and hundreds of people. Mm. Um, that sense of like, like that overwhelming quality that the movie just has, even if you watch it like on your computer, on your TV at this point, like the, seeing it on the most overwhelming screen possible in the loudest sound system possible was incredible. And so like that was when you were talking about Dunkirk being the cinematic experience of the year, 
for you um, or the, the theatrical going experience of the year. Uh, good time was that. And in fact, the Safi brothers said like, I've heard that uh, Dunkirk and good time make a good, um, <laughs> like a uh, panic attack, double feature. And, um, so do, what's funny about that too, is um, I saw good time twice in cinemas, um, the same spot, both times. It was the Hollywood theater here in Portland again. And I might have mentioned to you this at the time. I, I can't remember, but they had Dunkirk playing in their main cinema downstairs on 70. Uh-huh. Well, Good Good Time was up in one of the small theaters upstairs. And I think if you remember, Joe, the Hollywood has some sound bleed issues. Yeah. <laughs> and Dunkirk being perhaps the loudest fucking movie ever made uh, after Nolan's last movie, um, it, it, it was odd i knew this was going to happen because i knew both movies were playing at the same time but they're both loud movies Mm -hmm. but it was an interesting experience i was of course disappointed but also it it did dawn on me that like oh my god that would be a great double feature but bleeding the scores in and out of each other like the dunkirk score would come in in the rare quiet moments in good time when i was watching it and it was kind of thrilling it was weird they they do kind of create this panic attacked um cinematic experience that I guess the music being so different between the two still fits. It's uh, it was yeah, sort of I, an, an odd experience, but I liked it. Yeah. The, the, the sense of like crescendo uh, present in both scores, both Hans Zimmer and uh, Daniel Lopatin as one of tricks point never, like they both have a sense of like incredible crescendo and like yeah. totally different sounds, you know, like, Hans Zimmer has, has a way to like elicit strings and like find like a, a sort of classical composition that reaches almost this like avant-garde noise concert level of like distortion sometimes. Uh-huh. And then what our tricks point never is like he traffics in that, in this sort of distortion territory already. And like his super just like drony synthy, like it was just like a, a new terrain that he was sort of like carving out the way I feel mm. like the Safety brothers are cinematically. So it was like a perfect pairing. And then, you know, it may, maybe we should try it as a, as a AYT double feature and uh, <laughs> the panic attack, double feature, man. I yeah. think it'd be fun. It'd be fun. Now I, I, as you're talking about good time, it, it, it does dawn on me that it has to be included in my choices. I mean, I loved it. It's my number five film of the year, but it also is one of my great theatrical experiences of the year. Um, not because it was on film or anything like that. It's just because like you've said, Holy shit, what an amazing immersive and shockingly entertaining, you know, while also being deeply depressing and fucked up. Like it's all these things, but such an entertaining filmic experience. Uh, and it's so easy to get absorbed into that movie. Uh, the opening scene with with uh, Benny Safdie with the doctor is so perfectly calibrated to get you into this world. And then, boom, Robert Pattinson bursts through that door and the movie just, you know, is off to the races. Yeah. And I got to say, I think both times seeing it in the theater, one of my favorite moments in a film this year, I would actually say is the opening credits, which comes about 10 minutes after that that opening scene of Good Time. Right. And the Safties did this with heaven knows what, where it's a prolonged, uh, you almost get like an opening scene, then a prolonged credit sequence. And in a way that they only used to do back in the day, like 70s and 80s movies would really do this. And yet they're finding it's not a nostalgic, like we think it's so cool, we want to copy that. It's more like, it's more like the way the good time poster 
was a total homage ripoff to After Hours, the Scorsese movie, because they're just they're using these familiar things to then leap off into their own territory for it. And yeah, yeah the opening credits where Benny is being introduced to the prison and it's getting very scary and like just the buildup of it, the that's where you get that first almost it's the beginning of the narcotic hit. Like you've just taken a hit and now you're you're kind of you're everything is getting, you know, amped up and excited. And then, you know, the movie's gonna take you through that entire sort of exhausting experience. But those credits just always make me feel like I am in the hands of filmmakers that know what the fuck they're doing and they're so good at communicating to me what they're trying to get at, you know, and I, I, we've been singing the praises of these directors for good reasons for years now. Um, I think that makes two of their films as your number one, right, Joe? Cause heaven knows what was, was your number one. It's true. Yeah. They, You're, you love these guys. Yeah. Almost got to talk to them this last year, but it, it uh, yeah. true. but um, yeah, like the, that credit sequence you're talking about, it's almost like this kind of this moment that like, almost operates as like a punchline. Cause like the movie is so immediately electrifying and just like throws you into its world. And then like, there's something kind of like sobering about like the starting like 10 minutes into the movie and you're like, Oh fuck. Right. We never got any opening credits. Like, <laughs> and you're so like thrown into the mix of like the like kinetic energy of the movie. They're like, Oh, right, right, right. This is a movie. Forgot. Sorry. Hang on a second. Um, <laughs> you have to get your bearings and like that, uh, cinematic, like just that universe and like that sense of immersion is like in in like a time where movies are like constantly signifying the types of movies that they're trying to be when something right. is just so natural and like is, is sort of like giving you its own language and its own sensibility. It's like, it's, it's very refreshing and very like, there's a sense of authenticity to the movie that like feels rare. And like, it's not alone. There's like a lot of movies that feel sort of genuine enough in a very like startling and needed way this last year. Yeah. And a two four, you know, is sort of at the helm of a lot of them. Yeah. I mean, I I think of the, the Florida project, which was, you know, my number six, I I forget already. Was that in your 10 through six, Joe? I I was my number nine. Your number nine was Florida. So we both love that movie, of course. And, there's another A24 release that I think like Good Time in the way you're talking could very easily and had in the past, these type of movies had been done to death in a sort of miserable list style. Like yeah. poor people and you got to, everything needed to be sort of solemn and tragic. And what's amazing is the stories are still tragic and told in a way that's honest, Good Time and Florida Project. But the way the movies are told are much more vibrant and alive and crackling with energy. So you don't you're, you're almost tricked into watching a sort of sad, miserable story, you know, uh, people on the fringes story, because the filmmaking is so raw and beautiful and then sucks you in that you're entertained. And I love that you can get the peanut butter and the chocolate in these kind of movies. A24 has really landed on that sort of sweet spot. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why you and I go for their movies so much. They Many of their movies keep popping up in both our top tens every year. And I think it's because they're kind of hitting, they are making movies for an audience that you and I are a part of that really would love that the, the high end with the low end, you know, give me some of the B movie goods. Give me some of that prestige goods, like mix them together. Um, and I think their best work sort of exemplifies that. So, yeah. um, yeah, there's a reason us and a lot of people are, are 
are in the bag for this A24 company is because they put out great movies. And um, yeah, you know, uh, just just glad to see uh, a lot of cool titles uh, well represented by, by you and me, I would say. It, we, we had plenty of crossover, which is usual, but um, it's good to see the differences, you know? Yeah, and uh, Focus Features, who put out Raw, are they responsible for your number one? They are. They are. Nicely done. So is that maybe a pivot point to our to our talk? Yeah, let's do it. You can sew almost anything into the canvas of a coat. When I was a boy, I started to hide things in the linings of the garments. Things that only I knew were there. Secrets. Good morning. Will you have dinner with me? Yes. I feel as if I've been looking for you for a very long time. You look beautiful. Very beautiful. I have things I want to do. Things I simply cannot do without you. Reynolds has made my dreams come true. And I have given him what he desires most in return. <laughs> Every piece of me. Whatever you do, do it carefully. I guess uh, early quick context, Phantom Thread has been out for you since Christmas in L.A., right, Joe? It was, uh, yeah, the intro by the the Arclight employee uh, said, like, oh, what an interesting Christmas movie you guys picked to the, the <laughs> mostly sold-out crowd. Um, it, it was an early show, too. I feel, it was, like, a 11.30 in the morning, and it was full and oh, on Christmas okay. Day. And the guy was like, well, lucky for you, this is only two, a little over two hours. Because <laughs> he, he thought we were in for a sort of unusually bleak experience, which, like... Mm. That primer, it's a little misleading because, like, I say so. Yeah, because like what I wasn't prepared for was how kind of funny the movie was. You know, like that. Um, I just personally, right off the bat, like on paper, I don't know that you could find a movie that I would be less interested in. Um, <laughs> just in, like I told you, my aversion to like this style of kind of postured period piece of like very propped up people. It's about a clothing designer. And can you tell me the era that it takes place in? I believe uh, it's just generally 1950s London. Okay. 1950s, maybe, but like 1950s London clothing uh, designer, like I just not on paper. No, I'm not sold. This pitch would not excite me. (laughs) Um, And my experience with Daniel day Lewis, I remember when um, in 2007, when, uh, there will be old men and no country for blood were both out. Um, <laughs> Daniel day Lewis was sort of talked up in for there will be blood. I know the difference. Um, <laughs> and like to me, like I was kind of getting irritated because like there's something very showy about mm. and presentational about his performance. He's incredible, but there still was just something kind of like there's, there's like, there's a showmanship to it. But what is interesting, especially in this film, is that there's that same level of posturing, but he's able to access something so relatable deep beneath the posturing. And I think his best work does that. 
that he's able to almost like call up these age old ways of the way that people like pose themselves. That's like, it's not easy for people to do. I think it's like easily easy for people to like, uh, uh, I don't know, like to caricaturize, yeah, but not know how to like make look normal. And I think like his presence, um, in the lesser films like Lincoln and stuff like that, or the movies that we've liked less, you know, yeah. where it's just like, it doesn't access that relatability beneath the posturing. And so in this film, like there's something petty. It, it, it locates and isolates the pettiness and the need and the neediness of relationships. Cause at its core, it's a relationship movie about prickly personality types trying like that understand something so fundamental and deep about each other. They need each other, but they still set each other off in these, like these petty ways that like everybody does in a relationship (laughs) and like scenes of him being just an absolute asshole were hilariously rewarding. (laughs) And like, it was able to sort of like, just access something that is necessary to keep a pulse inside what could easily be like a museum piece and boring to that extent. And why on paper that is sort of a dull prospect for me. So yeah, just like his, if, if this is to be his last performance, Daniel day Lewis, cause he said this role was so draining and depressing for him that he just had to stop. I don't really think this is going to be his last performance, but if it is like, it's an incredible one to go out on. Yeah, man, it really is. Isn't it? And, um, and maybe it's going to be like a Soderbergh situation. Cause he's already directing movies again. And right. two years ago he was retired quote unquote. So <laughs> I guess maybe Daniel day Lewis just wants to take a longer break than normal. Maybe, um, PTA has been saying Paul Thomas Anderson in in interviews for the movie has been saying that it's hard to get him. He describes it as like, it's hard to get him off the couch, but once you do Daniel day Lewis is all in and you better keep up because he will wear you down with his work ethic, which is so cool because we, we hear about what a hard worker he is, how immersed in his roles he is, Mm -hmm. but like to hear an actual like equal and a collaborator, like PTA to Daniel day Lewis, like talk about him in that way is just, I love getting those tidbits of information. And, um, I guess just side note, there is a wonderful, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson interview on the ringer, the bill or it's the bill Simmons podcast. I'm sorry. Um, it's like an hour and a half. Uh, they apparently got the Mark Maron slot for this movie because Maron got to talk to him when Inherent Vice came out uh, yeah. for a very long time. So anyway, great interview. I suggest people listen to it if you like PTA. Um, but uh, yeah, this this movie, Phantom Thread, I've only just now been able to see it uh, the other day. They press screened it here in Portland and it comes out on Friday. So there's, it, this is one of those movies that LA, New York got before the year to qualify for Academy Awards, but now it's properly kind of coming out. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think it goes wider in a week, January 19th. So more people will be able to see this in about a week. And uh, we, I think we both, since it's in our top 10, we recommend you do that just right from the top. But um, boy, I, I think it would take a lot less time to say what I don't like about this movie than what I do. And I'm happy that we're going to have the time to talk about what we like. Cause I can't really, honestly, Joe, I cannot like, like being smitten by a person. This movie conveys mm-hmm. this idea so well, the sort of toxicity, the hallucinatory 
mind fuck of falling in love with someone of getting right. into, into a romance. This movie distills that idea down and it's not the only thing phantom thread is about, which is also great. So it's very much about that. So just like that feeling, that smitten feeling, that's how I feel with this movie and not just with the performances, not just because PTA is my favorite director. It's like, it's why he's my favorite director is everything that's in this movie. Yeah. Um, and, and I think his real gift, I guess, just to start for me is especially what he's been on about lately as he's matured as a filmmaker. And I think there will be blood, the master and this film phantom thread fit together in this way. Inherent vice is a little different, a little more discursive, a little more loose and, and, uh, and, and rambling and all that. But those three movies are these period pieces that you think are going to be almost like biopic, like recreations of real people, you know, Mm -hmm. or, or actual topical things. There will be blood. It's about oil and religion. Well, no, there will be blood is actually about this insane competition between a priest and an oil guy. And all that stuff is there swirling around in the stew, in the background. It's there for you to, to take what he's doing with it. But what I love about PTA is same with the master and same with phantom thread. It's about a lot of things. It's not about couture fashion. It is. It certainly immerses you in the world of sewing dresses for rich people and, and creating a hyper insanely sterile bubble world. Right. It's about all these things, you know? Yeah. And I think that's the, that's what he brings as a filmmaker is you think, you know what his movies are about. And then you see him and you're like, I could have never guessed that this is what it was about. And I think at a basic level, he breaks things down for character first, but he sets mm-hmm. them in a, in a, in a familiar time and place based on research of actual people. So, you know, the master's not a Scientology movie, but it's pretty much the Scientology story as told through this insane kind of homoerotic love story between two dudes that are kind of bad for each other, you know? And then, and Phantom Thread has all these other things that it's about, which we should obviously keep talking about, but just right off the bat, man, this movie, the credits start, and I just want to exist in this movie. You know that feeling, Joe? I mean, I think we we get it occasionally. You know, you I, I don't want to speak for you, so I want, I want to know what you think, but this was one of those feelings where it started the gorgeous title credit came up and I was like, yep, I think I love this movie already. I'm, I'm like into the vibe of it, you know? And then the rhythm never got repetitive or dull. It only got better as the movie continued to peel back layers and reveal itself. So I, I'm just head over heels for this movie right now. Yeah. It, it, to me, it was like, it was more of a curveball because of my aversion to, you know, like the the type of movie that can feel kind of joyless in its posturing, you know, mm-hmm. it's, just, it's so obsessed with like getting the pinpointable details right of like, oh, people have their collars like this in the 1950s in England and, you know, like just stuff like that, that starts to feel suffocating. Mm-hmm. It was just like the way you were talking about how, <clears throat> you know, it, it could put like the movie on paper. It's not what it, the movie isn't about what is on paper for the, like the synopsis because it's a, it's about the inner dynamics of difficult people <clears throat> and not even in the way that's like traditional. He's found a new way to tell a love story. Yes. The same way <clears throat> my coworker, excuse me, I'm really getting choked up about this, <laughs> but like a coworker pointed out about call me by your name saying that like it was sad without being tragic 
Yes. Because like if if uh Call Me by Your Name is a coming out story, it's a coming out story that like isn't that doesn't have a sense of judgment attached to it. There is just like the freedom to explore and just the inherent sadness of connecting yourself to somebody that you might lose just naturally. And so like in that same way, you this movie Phantom Thread can be about toxicity without demonizing it or dramatizing it to the point of needing to make a judgment about it. Mm-hmm. You know, like there is something unfortunately or just like naturally built in that there is something kind of like toxic and demanding about codependent relationships and like there in what could be almost like there there's almost like beguiled like scenes in it where you're like wait what's going on what the (laughs) fucked up and then it turns weirdly darkly sweet and you're like huh this is like it's it's a new way to tell an age-old story you know, and I think that like it also shares similarities, you know, like tonally and sort of look wise uh, with There Will Be Blood and The Master. It also shares that sort of like quirky romantic, romantic dynamic and interpersonal dynamic with Punch Drunk Love. And yeah. I think luckily this one gives the, the main um, the female character more agency, whereas like. The character in Punch Drunk Love is just sort of like endearingly tolerant of Adam Sandler's berserk behavior. She's like, like she's like the arty manic pixie dream girl kind of in that movie. Admittedly, a, a little bit. Yes. Yeah. It's like at its in its most limited, like it's just right. that, you know, right. and um, uh, what the the actress's name is Vicky Kripes. Is that right? Right. And I think it's also just worth adding that it's kind of a dual female perspective that the movie swings into about halfway. Sure. And it's Vicky, Vicky creeps as the love interest that, that comes along uh, for Daniel day Lewis's character, but also his sister played by Leslie Manville, who is a, in a phenomenal British actor. She's in a bunch of Mike Lee movies like secrets and lies in another year. Um, I don't know how familiar you are with her, but man, is she, she is the real secret of this movie for me, of yeah. like what, what makes it really work. Yeah. Like that, that sort of like their breakfast scenes, like <laughs> the, the three of them, like I honestly could watch all of the scenes of them eating. Like those were, that was like every time they would sit down and there would be tension around eating I, I don't know if you know this about me, but I have tremendous um, sensitivity to people eating around me and like the sounds they make when they eat. So like a Daniel D. Lewis's most assholey tendencies would be like, you loud. like it's, it's as if a horse walked into the room. That's me. Like I was like, ah, that's me. This is all oh, I'm being represented. Thank you. Um, See, PTA remembers how to make the audience relate to these bizarre scenarios, right? He never forgets the audience. Like, he does make it relatable. He gives you, but he also gives you, like, the tools to understanding every character's perspective in, especially in these sort of triangular scenarios in the sort of eating breakfast scenes with his sister, with Alma, with Daniel Day Lewis's character, like it's all just like he gives you the tools to understanding everyone's perspective. And that's like there's an economy to the writing that provides you with everything you need. There's also just like uh there was there was a beautiful poetry to the language of the dialogue. Yes. Especially in the scenes where people are being cunts to each other. Like it was <laughs> 
something beautiful about like there was almost something play like you know there was like mm. it, it reminded me of like a, a classical like bitingly harsh like play you know like a brecht play or something like that it's it's and, amazing uh, how modern the film can feel like modern in that sense where you see a movie and you're like i've kind of never seen it done like this before yeah and that's what he did. He takes these familiar things that seem like we know what the story is on the surface. Oh, dressmaker in 50s London. Sure, the logline, that's it. But that does not tell you the feel of this no. movie. And he, yeah, he finds this modern sensibility even while shooting it like Kubrick shot Eyes Wide Shut. But it doesn't. it's not like a ripoff of that. He's way past sort of homage filmmaking at this point. It's Yeah. He's just, yeah, he's finding his own modern style. And he always, I feel like, graphs the appropriate style to the right story. I think he's a little more loose than like a Quentin Tarantino type where Tarantino has to make his version of something. PTA does that, but it's more fluid in terms of the style now, I feel like, you know? So yeah, it's very exciting, man, to watch him in, in the zone. I feel like he's just in the prime of his career, you know, like he can knock a movie out like this and he clearly has to keep these things to a certain budget, but he's just operating at the top of his game with all the best people in the industry. It seems like, you know, and I think there's a reason Daniel day Lewis wants to keep working with him or has worked with him twice. And uh, it's, it's, yeah. it's very cool. I think, I think you make a lot of good points of bringing up the, and I think it's important too that um, for a modern audience watching this movie, I, I guess if you've gotten this far and you haven't seen it yet and you're listening to us, it's like, Give this movie, stick it out with this movie. I'm not going to say that it's difficult for the first hour, but I think there's certain elements of a modern audience that are going to think that this movie's quasi celebrating this uh, this sort of boy genius character that Daniel Day Lewis plays. This uh, disgruntled, no. yeah, right. Yeah. I, I guess just in, I'm trying to imagine right where some people might be like, "Ooh, this is a celebration," but stick it out. Maybe that won't yeah. happen to you, but I could see an audience getting that feeling and then maybe not wanting to finish or something. But I think what will happen is you're just going to be seduced by this movie yeah. because as you've pointed out, Joe, the food scenes, the, the sewing, the process, this is a, such a sensual film. Yeah. Sensu I would say it's yeah. more sensual than even call me by your name where it, and that felt new for PTA where like he really will have close-ups of like eggs being cooked in buttered mushrooms and it looks delicious. You see the chives and the spinach being put on it. Like a, it's a like genuine French crepe. Have you ever, or not a crepe, a French <laughs> omelet. Have you ever had one? I have not, but it fucking looked incredible in this movie. <laughs> yeah, they are, even know, they even are knowing, sensual. go ahead. I'm sorry. They are, they are very sensual. So he, he captured that. He I don't want to hear them being eaten, but I they, I do enjoy eating them. You know, it's it's really funny to hear you say that because you it, it dawns on me that so much of the of what we've talked about since we've known each other is like I can recall times where you're like, yeah, I was at the theater and this like asshole was chewing his popcorn really loud behind me, or ghost ghost story being omitted from my top ten just because of the pie scene. I'm like, I can't ever watch that fucking movie again because <laughs> she eats an entire pie in one take and it's repulsive. <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny, man. Like that. It makes sense now that that's actually like a thing for you. I guess I knew that without you ever actually literally saying it. And I love that because those scenes in phantom thread are just so amazing because 
he uses a very simple tool that I think you and I have been talking a lot about lately where um, it's that element of making something cinematic with, in this case, sound design. Mm -hmm. So they're they're sitting at a deathly still quiet breakfast table, Daniel Day-Lewis and his sister played by Leslie Manville. And then in walks this new ingenue, this new love interest that's appearing in his world that has cracked through his bubble. And uh, Vicky Crepes uh, is the actress and she's, and she's scraping the the burnt toast and she's putting her butter on and the sound design you can tell just gets turned up like to 11 so you can you can really feel the annoyance that Daniel Day-Lewis the movie does such a good job of shifting perspectives with subtle yeah. subtle things like that like sound design it's just so wonderful yeah like and in a later scene where he's like he's he has to adjust to become more tolerant to her you see like his like you see the agony in his restraint, which is like a beautifully <laughs> layered performance, like showing him acknowledging. And I know this because I have the same problem. <laughs> so like seeing him register that he's annoyed thing that he's trying to get through it, like watching all of that work, you know, when you're, when you're used to seeing someone kind of like play to the back of the house, the way Daniel Day Lewis can with like, I drink your milkshake. Seeing him just simply react, you're like, oh, he's a fucking actor to the bone marrow. Because like watching him react to something where he's seemingly not reacting, like you see all of the work happening in his eyes. And it's just like it's all there. All of the presence, all of the the sort of the sense memory and like all of the the work that goes into character building is there when he's seemingly doing nothing at all. It's beautiful. The looks this guy gives, man, could the the amount of hilarious and I'm I truly mean that word, hilarious looks that Daniel Lay Lewis gives throughout this movie is sort of like being taken through the spectrum of that seduction of falling in love with someone, right? It's so amazing mm-hmm. until it's not anymore until suddenly you're like, oh, I'm with a person and that person might annoy me. They, they're a person. They're going to exist in my world and I'm going to exist in theirs. And that's where I think you nailed it. I think earlier you said this movie is darkly romantic or darkly sweet. And yeah. it really, really is. This is, I think, an incredibly original but so potent romance being told here and I think through all the fucked up bizarre developments that happen as it goes on, as the movie gets more gothic in a way, um, it's very classical, but then it it just becomes like just slightly heightened in a hallucinatory way at times near the end. As, uh, as things progress, there's just this, the sense that this is a relationship movie and it is bizarre as it is. It's so on point and honest. I think it's very sweet, but also, this is very well his funniest movie. I don't know. Boogie Nights is pretty pretty perfect as a comedy, yeah. I guess. But this movie has Boogie Nights stops being a comedy about an hour and a half in, you know? It it becomes a Goodfellas sort of undone the good times become undone, you know? And and Phantom it's Thread is funny from funny What's that? It is you're right. It is still pretty damn funny. <laughs> Um, that's true. And Phantom Thread is just maybe a different version of, of just, a, it's so funny all throughout. And I loved watching the arc of this relationship, um, in a way that, uh, for me was very relatable, not directly, but, and I'm not trying to compare what I have with, with my partner, uh, Elaine, like, but we live a life where we're both following 
a creative passion uh, in our careers and just in our lives. Like we both sometimes work from home, her more than me. We, we are in each other's sort of space more than most couples are during a like nine to five period, Monday through Friday. And I just, I guess more than anything, that idea of like pursuing a passion, I could relate to so much like the interruptions that happen in this movie, right? There are sequences where Vicky Creeps is just trying to do something nice for Daniel Day-Lewis. Yep. She wants to bring him some tea while he works because he he is a man that just only knows how to work nonstop, you know? It's how he exists. And as soon as there's a scene where she interrupts him naturally to try to offer it, and he has a line of like, well, you're leaving now, but the interruption stays right here or something yeah, like that. I'm taking the tea away. And he's like, but the the interruption remains. It stays with me. <laughs> like, and it is that line, man, is fucking perfect. It is so biting. And when that moment happened, me and Elaine were watching the movie. We looked at each other and laughed because we haven't said those to each, those words to each other, but we certainly fucking felt them because you're just, even when it's just trying to do something sweet, you don't always, this movie just understands its character's perspective so well that it can be that funny and that biting and then that romantic and then that sweet and then that fucked up. It can, it can jump tones and it all feels even keeled and balanced. It's uh it's really an amazing, amazing feat. And I, I just was blown away how funny this movie was. I guess I thought it would be more buttoned up because of the log line. Yeah. Because, because it's set in upper crust, British society, rich people, rich white people. But this movie is very critical of that world in a way that I don't think is unfair, but also is very biting and very mm-hmm. funny. And, um, uh, I, I love that. I guess, um, I want to know what you think about that, Joe, but, uh, the last thing I want to say before I hand off back to you is like, I think this movie is also PTA's grand statement on, it's sort of a takedown on auteur theory. If you think about it in some ways. Well, yeah, it's, it's definitely critical of, uh, just like pe like people with particularities and like a specificity that's like that obsessive, which we usually celebrate about auteurs is their like specificity and their like insane focus. Like he's he's probably like dealing with his his own prickly nature. Like he comes across very kind of like breezy and endearing in his interview with Mark Maron. I haven't heard his latest interview, but uh, like he seems like a a kind of like relaxed person. I'm sure he was not always that way. And he may not be in his like actual process. Um, but like, he's an obsessive person. He's a prickly personality most likely. And like, you know, especially paired with Daniel day Lewis, who's like, you know, legendarily obsessive, like this, like it's, it's taking aim at like the strengths behind the piece itself, you know, like, yeah, it's an about an obsessive type and it sort of, you know, calls like how full of shit he is because the movie is largely from the perspective of Alma and um, the sister character. And so like giving that sense of agency to people who's, who are just like, look, I know you deep down. Like I know who you are. I know like how much you need. So it's just like, don't, don't try to prop yourself up as something bigger than you are. Yeah. yeah, like because I know you, right? Like I know you. I know the good. I got the goods on you and the bad stuff, right? That's about. Yeah. That's what intimacy is, right? Yeah, and that that like that vulnerability and how like it can feel vindictive at times, and that same that same relationship 
can be like as sinister as it might feel at times. It's the same one that is like, you know, uh, a source of like unbelievable sweetness, you know, (laughs) and like, and we, we haven't even really mentioned just like the, we've talked about the sound design, but like the camera work in it, it's like, it's just like the, the car mounted scenes in particular. Oh, they're like these like narrow bullet shaped kind of British cars from the era. Like the way they, they mount it on the back of the car as it's like zooming down unfinished roads is so like, it's so dazzling. And then like the, the sort of front mounted camera at night that sort of uh, recalls the kind of clockwork orange car scenes where they're all yeah. sort of like psychotically staring down the sort of narrow British roads and they're like, hey, yeah. And like that's, it sort of <laughs> recalls that sort of playfully in a movie that where that, that sensibility doesn't really fit. I thought of uh, there's a shot in heat near the end. You know, the, the you know, the shot I'm thinking of the of the car, the cameras mounted on the like hood of the car looking at Robert De Niro and oh, the, yeah, the tunnel. Yep. That, it's it made me think of that. And then also uh, there <laughs> from the reverse angle, there's a shot in the first Blade movie of Blade driving through like New York. That is gorgeous, just like that. And it's got that blue chrome kind of aesthetic lighting filter thing. Mm-hmm. And Yet in Phantom Thread, just those shots alone, the car shots you refer to are completely new to me. Like the speed is like the speed in Clockwork Orange, but it's not green screeny in a funny way like it is yeah, in Clockwork yeah. Orange. It's yeah. real. And the, then then the aesthetic and where the camera's mounted feels sort of like heat or blade, but it's really its own thing. And yeah, man, it, it's just those shots alone are stunning. Yeah, Paul Thomas Anderson is a established fan of Blade and its sequels. He- <laughs> he really loves blade trinity especially the worst Mm -hmm. one (laughs) um uh i think that's actually something interesting to bring up about him and i think you'll see this uh when you listen if you if you listen to that bill simmons podcast interview because he talks about his affection for like early adam sandler movies or when inherent vice was out he talked about being taken by zucker brothers movies like airplane and top uh naked gun uh naked gun yeah naked gun and, and stuff like that and he, for all his, I think Mark Maron talked about that. His surprise at when he got to talk with him in that podcast a couple years ago was like, he thought he was going to be this sort of clinical, scary auteur. He thought he was going to be Daniel Day-Lewis and Phantom Thread. Yeah. But he turns out to be a real kind of chill guy that just loves movies and likes to kind of hang out. He comes off more like a Richard Linklater, like a dude you'd want to actually hang out with, you know, right. if, you're, if you're kind of a laid back person. And that's amazing. It's that it's that um, it's that peanut butter and chocolate. It's that I think the it's the low with the high. He loves he loves Adam Sandler movies, but he loves you know David Lean movies from the this era of British cinema or you know classic stuff. Like he is this amazing hybrid, and he gets compared with Quentin Tarantino a lot. But they're both doing they're both on opposite ends of the spectrum of reforming the stuff they love as cinephiles into their own thing, you know? And, um, I'm, it's just such, such an amazing, like amount of awesome stuff in, in Phantom Thread for me where, uh, yeah, you, 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 uh, I guess a few things I just wanted to throw out there, I guess, before we really wrap up our talk on Phantom Thread is like, um, just a side note. I think this movie shockingly, surprisingly makes a great double feature for mother in a way. I, d- I don't know if you see it, but if you think about the Javier Bardem and Jennifer Lawrence, the relationship, if you look at it as an artist relationship, 
mother mm-hmm. is the is the of course the hysterical negative version of that right phantom thread goes through plenty of fucked up weird shit in its relationship details but comes out the other end in a way that's much more positive and it's why i like it more than mother i mean they're different films otherwise Mm -hmm. but but phantom thread just seduced me because it's like no this movie wants these two to end up together because they kind of deserve each other both good and bad and isn't that isn't that kind of what being in love is you know like this movie gets at the the idea of the work involved in being in love with someone is like, it takes fucking work. And this movie embeds all that in a very entertaining package. And, um, I guess the last like kind of quick point I want to throw out there that I think is worth examining is how I think this movie is feminist. This I think this is a feminist statement on auteur boy geniuses. I, because I think PTA was labeled that, especially in his twenties. So he knows He knows that realm, that level of uh, examination as an artist. And I think what he's doing in this movie is actually showing he's, he's taking the Robert Altman tactic that he learned. It, it takes a village. You need to collaborate with all the people on, on your staff. And this movie within its story points out that without all the women in his life, not just Vicky Creeps and Leslie Mansville, they're the, they're the peaks of his world. But this movie so subtly and gracefully shows you that without all the women sewing his crazy designs, these things would never happen. He creates the issues, the melodrama, the crazy sterile world. They follow through on it. Yeah. Patton Oswalt had a joke in his latest Netflix special, which is incredible and very sad and, and funny, but he has this concept where he talks about why there was probably a lot of female editors in Hollywood in the last hundred years. I don't know if you remember this gag, but it's brilliant because yeah, yeah, where it's like the men go off and shoot all this film. Oh man. It's very sexual. We're like, they just shoot, shoot film, not blah, blah, blah. And then it's like, then, then comes, you know, the Thelma Schoonmakers of the world for Martin Scorsese. And they're like, here we go, boys. Okay. Let me have all the film so I can sort this out and make something out of it. It's like this movie gets that idea that you need without all the brilliant, hardworking women in this guy's life. Um, Reynolds Woodcock, the Daniel Day-Lewis character, could never have come into being. And I love this movie gives that feminist perspective in a way that's very real and honest. And I don't think it's heightened to capture the political feelings of the time. It's just it's just the right time to tell this particular angle of the story. And um, I, I loved that about it. Yeah, I think if in, like if there's an energy to it, it's just like a new exploration of like, a dynamic that like has never been portrayed in a certain way. And I think that like giving agency to the character of Alma and to the sister character, well, I'll just avoid giving her a name, <laughs> <laughs> but like it, it does sort of like it, it, it's, it attempts to course correct from like the tendencies of just, you know, the punch drunk love type characterization of like having someone who's just like, I'll deal with you. Like you're, you're quirky and you punch bathroom stalls to death, but that's okay. (laughs) I'll deal with it. You know, like there's something as, as whimsical as that movie is and as sort of like winning and rewarding as it is, there is like something kind of slight in that characterization that seems to be uh, like corrected rewardingly in this movie and um 
uh, as far as like double features go, uh, I'd say to watch Three Women, uh, the Robert Ooh. Altman movie, because they're they're a good overlap. Robert Altman and Paul Thomas Anderson and uh, and Phantom Thread, or just watch Phantom Thread twice before you watch Phantom Thread and Mother. I would go with that. Yeah, what the hell, man? I mean, I loved Mother, unlike you, but uh, I say go see Phantom Thread <laughs> for sure. I uh, I, th- I think Three Women is on Netflix. I'm going to check. I think it's worth it because that is an Altman I've been meaning to to see. But uh, you like that movie? You've never seen it? I've been wanting to, man. Uh, it looks like it's not on, not on Netflix anymore. I have not seen it, but uh, the more I catch up with, especially '70s era Altman, I kind of yeah, I go nuts for it. You're gonna love it. Oh man, I can't wait. Yeah, so I apologize, folks. It's not on Netflix anymore, but you know it's out there. You can rent it on VOD and and you can find it so awesome i look forward to catching up with that altman title and that that is appropriate to bring up uh for pta because the he worked with them of course so um i guess that makes me that reminds me that like when a prairie home companion was being made uh whenever that came out 2005 2006 um PTA was the assistant director that was there because Altman was so sick that if he died during production, PTA would finish it for him. And I think that was the time that really saw him mature as a filmmaker because he had a big gap between Punchdruck Love, then he helped with Prairie Home, and then he made There Will Be Blood. And I just noticed a change in him in interviews where yeah. he's always talked about loving making movies and he loves actors and working with his people, but he really has moved forward and he, I gotta say he comes off as a very good guy to work for because he is so about collaboration and, and honoring the people he works with. And he even was the cameraman and did the lighting. Like he's not credited straight up as the cinematographer on phantom thread, but PTA worked with his crew because Robert Ellswit, his typical DP wasn't available for this one apparently. And they shot it. And I just think that's really that's cool. And in a way it's meta because the way they made this movie informs the story, some of the story that's being told. And I love when that happens, you know, it's like, again, it's another peanut butter and chocolate thing for me as I continue to make that, that, uh, that hungry. I think I might be, we started earlier than normal today. So maybe I'm hungry. Maybe I need some, you know what I need, Joe? I need bacon. I need eggs. I need sausage. How, how does he order his ordering of breakfasts in this movie are just amazing <laughs> yeah it's really intense sausage scones <laughs> yeah i love that's the way the, go ahead yeah that's never looked so so sensual as in this movie oh god i just wanted to i needed a burger after this movie even though they eat way better food than just a burger <laughs> Uh, me, uh, me, my lady and friend of the show, Octay Kozak host of, uh, over under movies was there. We had to, we had to go for burgers <laughs> after this movie just to, just to get some good food in us. It's just food porn left, right and center in phantom thread. So, um, yeah, man, I, uh, I hope I've made a decent case. I do feel a little hacky that this is my number one, that it could just shoot up after like two days, you know? After all the time I spent with Dunkirk and Mother and Good Time and Blade you Runner, really, like you made know. this, you you knew this was going to be your number one, like the night you saw it. So, so uh, it hasn't been two days. You're just like my number one. <laughs> you you knew that it was going to be our pivot point into the <laughs> the review because it's your number one. Yeah, I did. I feel guilty about that as a critic, but I, I'm trying to work out that I shouldn't, I guess, or, you know, maybe I just need you to comfort me. I don't know, but I no, feel like, like it's when, you know, you're in love. Oh yeah, that's, that's true. 
that is what it's like. You just fucking know, right? Like nobody had to tell me that I was in love with the woman I'm with. It's just like, it dawned on me. And I was like, it starts out like, this is worth pursuing. And that's maybe the first 15, 20 minutes of Phantom Thread. And then the rest of it is like, oh yeah, I'm in love with this person. And I would give anything to get to just be around them for the rest of my life. And you take that with the good and the bad. Um, and uh, boy, does the Phantom Thread show off the good and the bad, right? True. All right, man, let's wrap this one up. What do you think? Sounds good. All right, man. Well, uh, fuck me. I could go on about this movie forever, but uh, Ooh, I can't wait. It'll come back. <laughs> it'll come back for sure. I can't wait to see Phantom Thread again. And we hope you go see it. This movie deserves to be even a modest hit. You know, let's make this one a hit, please, folks. So just chill to the next episode. Let's wrap up episode 164 of Adjust Your Tracking. You can find us and all our other shows on the Playlist Podcast Network. You can find us at theplaylist.net. There's a podcast tab to click on right there on the site. You can find us at on iTunes. Subscribe, rate, review. Uh, same, same, yeah, same deal for Stitcher or SoundCloud. Follow us on SoundCloud. Like us on SoundCloud. That helps. Um, normally I hand off the Twitter handle to Joe, but, uh, a switch has happened and I think it's worth me maybe owning that now, unless you differ, but, uh, I got banned from Twitter. (laughs) You did not. It's just become quite apparent that, that I've been using it more than you. So now I've just made our same feed. It's still at adjust your track is now Eric underscore a Y T. So it's the same handle at adjust your track, but now it's, it's, both my personal Twitter feed, but also no different than it has been. It's your source for all things AYT on Twitter. So um, follow me there and you'll get your AYT fix. And hopefully I won't annoy you with my ramblings and opinions. But uh, I would, you know, Facebook, Joe, where where are we there? Where can people find us there? Just look up Adjust Your Tracking and uh, you'll see our familiar icon. And uh, you can follow us, find out when episodes drop in the avalanche of otherwise bad news on Facebook. <laughs> that's true it's true get through clear through that mountain of bad news and find yourself some some ayt we got a lot of good stuff trump, that's been coming trump, out fire trump trump oh ayt has a new episode i can i can breathe for an hour thankfully hopefully um yes exactly we'll help you we'll help you try to to at least combat the insane noise that's coming out in the news realm true. uh and if you do that hopefully you're thankful but nowhere near as thankful as i am to just get to to you know what joe to be intimate with you to have a relationship with you i i thank you my friend covered in christopher nolan's dna <laughs> thank you uh, 